I was on sabbatical and uh, did a host of fun adventures uh, there and back again, A Hobbit's Tale. Uh, so uh, me as Hobbit number three. But I'm going to be sharing and specifically looking at my time in Israel. And so uh, we're going to have a lot of pictures and video I took as I unpack uh, the world of Israel and my travels there. So stick around. That's after the service. Uh, we got a men's movie night coming up. And that's going to be on Thursday at 7 p.m. Men, we're coming together. It's a movie coming out for one night, The Heart of Man. Uh, and it deals with the challenge of seeking to love God and to have pure minds and hearts in, in, a, in a generation, in a world uh, that seems to be going in the exact opposite uh, direction. Thursday, what's that? On September 14. Okay, so uh, we, we'd love to get some men out to be a part of that. Uh, Jesse Woodard is the point person. If you're interested in uh, signing up for that, being a part of that, come see uh, Barry after the service. If Jesse's here as well, um, uh, you can go ahead and do that. Okay, uh, that is the end of the announcements. And there's more that rises in the morning than the sun And more that shines in the night than just the moon It's more than just this fire here that keeps me warm In a shelter that is larger than this room And there's a loyalty that's deeper than mere sentiments and the music higher than the songs that I can sing The stuff of earth competes for the allegiance I owe only to the giver of all good things So if I stand, let me stand on the promise That you will pull me through And if I can't, let me fall on the grace that first brought And if I sing, let me sing for the joy that is born in me these songs. And if I weep, let it be as a man who is longing for his home. And there's more that dances on the prairies than the wind, and more that pulses in the ocean than the tide. A love that is fiercer than the love between friends More gentle than a mother's when a baby's at her side And there's a loyalty that's deeper than mere sentiments And the music higher than the songs that I can sing The stuff of earth competes for the allegiance I owe only to the giver of all good things so if I stand, let me stand on the promise that you will pull me through. And if I can't, let me fall on the grace first brought me to you. And if I sing, let me sing for the joy that is born in me these songs. And if I weep, as a man who is longing for his home and If I stand, let me stand on the promise That you will pull me through And if I can't, let me fall on the ground
grace that first brought me to you. And if I sing, let me sing for the joy that is born in me these songs. And if I weep, let it be as a man who is longing for his home. And if I weep, let it be as a man who is longing for his home. sermon text is on page 4 2 Corinthians 5 1 through 10 for we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed we have a building from God an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands meanwhile we groan longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling because when we are clothed we will not be found naked for while we are in this tent we groan in our burden because we do not wish to be unclothed but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we, at home, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, good or bad. The word of the Lord. It happened to me when I was 16. Actually, I'm sure it happened to me all of my life, but the first time I remembered it was when I was 16. I was sitting on the roof of my house looking up at the sky and the way I would describe it was an uh, unescapable longing that welled up in my heart. I wasn't exactly sure what it was for but it was a deep welling of emotion inside of me. A hunger for something, for someone that I did not even know the name of. Continued on and it continues on in my life though I know its name now. You probably have experienced it as well. C.S. Lewis spoke of an inconsolable longing in the human heart for we know not what. He described it as a desire of our own far-off country for something that has never actually happened in our experience. He called it that unnameable something, a desire for which pierces us like a sword at the smell of bonfire, the sound of wild ducks flying overhead, the morning cobwebs in late summer, or the noise of falling waves. You may have experienced it when you look at your newborn child and something wells up within you. There's an inconsolable longing in your heart. You may have even weeped as you've thought of it, not even knowing what you were weeping for. I think the point that this scripture is trying to make and the point that I want to drive home is that that longing, that satisfaction, cannot be found on this earth. In fact, if you place it on an object in this world, it will break your heart. There's a lie of our world that the desire for this longing is here. Lewis again said it this way. Almost our whole education has been directed toward 
silencing this shy, persistent inner voice. Almost all our modern philosophies have been devised to convince us that the good of man is to be found on this earth. And yet it is a remarkable thing that such philosophies of progress or creative evolutions themselves bear reluctant witness to the truth that our real goal is elsewhere. When they want to convince you that earth is your home, notice how they set about it. They begin by trying to persuade you that earth can be made into heaven, thus giving a sop to your sense of exile in earth as it is. Next, they tell you that this fortunate event is still a good way off in the future, thus giving a sop to your knowledge that the fatherland is not here and now. Finally, lest your longing for the trans-temporal should awake and spoil the whole affair, they use any rhetoric that comes to hand to keep out of your mind the recollection that even if all of the promises of happiness could come to man on earth, yet still each generation would lose it by death, including the last generation of all, and the whole story would be nothing, not even a story, forever and ever. It is in the Bible that we discover what this longing is. It's a longing for home. But home more than simply a physical place. I like what James Baldwin said. He said, perhaps home is not a place, but simply an irrevocable condition. We long for more than just a new home. We long for a new us. A heaven and earth coming together. A new everything. We long for things to be as it should, even though we've never seen things as they should. This passage in my sermon are focusing on really three points. Number one, what is this longing? How do we identify it? How can we articulate it in clearer terms? Number two, why do we long at all? Why do we long? And number three, how are we to live in the interim, in the midst of this longing, in between what has begun and what is to be fulfilled? I want to suggest to you that a holy dissatisfaction with this life is not something to be avoided, but something to be embraced. For we live by faith on this world, in this world, not by sight. Well, let's look at point number one. What is this longing? Paul starts out in 2 Corinthians 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Paul begins by talking about this tent, which is our earthly home. Paul was a tent maker, by the way. That was his side trade. So he he put together tents. Maybe you used a tent or not when you go camping. Tents were temporary abodes then. We all understand something about tents. They wear out. They don't last forever. They're not like brick. But our earthly home, the home on this earth, is a tent. It's temporary. And so Paul is speaking of our body. The body that you and I live in. And Paul says that we know that if this tent, our earthly body, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth. Speaking to be people who are believers, who are Christians. And so Paul is saying that there are two dwellings, the one we're in and the one that is to come. The important thing we can glean from this is that our body is not us. 
To be sure, my body is a part of me, but it is not exclusively me. There is more to me than my body. This is the problem, of course, with our culture, isn't it? Our secular age in which we live believes that the body is all there is. We are our body and there is nothing else. In fact, when you sum up all of the problems of the world, most of them anyways, they deal with this particular problem. Think about things like racism. I don't like the way that you look. I don't like the way that you speak. Therefore, I don't like you. You are your body. Think of all of the difficulties. I think in particular of women that constantly are bombarded by these images. You are what you look like. And this is how you grade your value and your worth. Think about things like ageism. Where we evaluate people by their bodies, by their aging. They can no longer participate. They can no longer do this or this. Therefore, they are to be looked upon. People with disabilities. What about people that have different sexual practices? This is what they do with their bodies. Therefore, I don't like them. Think, of course, about the unborn. It is a body. And therefore, we can terminate it before it thinks or it feels. But this passage is saying there's more to me than simply this. That I am housed inside of this. It was the psalmist in Psalm 139 that said, My frame was not hidden from you, God, when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And so in this passage, we see the fundamental dignity of the human person who is made in the image of God. Everyone is of value because they're made in the image of God irrespective of how they look or how well their body functions or what they do with their body. But we see that our body, our earthly tent, he says is destroyed, but you could just as simply say when it's destroyed. As a pastor, I deal in birth, I deal in marriage, and I deal in death. And I've seen people die. And it's very interesting to watch. You see them alive and then you see them die. Something is gone from that shell of that body. The eye has left it. But Paul goes on to say, we have a building from God. Not made with human hands, but eternal in the heavens. This is so exciting, my friends, because it's showing that there is another building that is ours. But it's not like the earthly tent, for it is not made with human hands. And it's made of different materials, a different builder and different materials. In 1 Corinthians, Paul spoke about the difference between these two bodies. He said the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. There are two prototypes of mankind. The first, the man from the earth, was Adam. 
and Eve. And they were constructed of dust. If you read the book of Genesis, you'll see that God took the earth and he formed this person, a man, and breathed his spirit into them. See, that's why we have the same chemical composition of the earth and the other organisms. We're from the earth and of the earth. But the second man, Jesus, who came as the earthly man, left as the heavenly man. For he died, was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of heavenly is of one kind and the glory of earthly is of another. If it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. They're different materials. Our bodies were created by mankind. A man and a woman coming together and the biological processes. God is the second cause that brings life to pass. But this new body is not created by God through second causes, but rather through first causes. He is our procreator who directly provides this new body, this heavenly body. We see that it's called a spiritual body. And when we think spiritual body, we think ghostly. It's a spirit. And yet when Christ came out of that tomb and went to his disciples... Notice that the, the wreck of his body no longer was the blood and the, the horror that had been done to him on the cross. But he retained those spikes so that we would, those spike holes so that we knew who he was. And he said, look, touch my hands and my side and see. A ghost does not have these things. No spiritual means full of the Holy Spirit. A new life that vivifies us with new elements. If this body, Paul says, is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. If it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. The final prototype for the Christian is Jesus Christ himself. He is the first fruits of the heavenly man. He is the picture of who we are to be. Why does this have to happen? Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. He's not talking the spirit a ghost inherits, but it's a new flesh and blood, an imperishable one. Some people say, if we could just go to a perfect place, all would be well. What would be the problem if you and I went to a perfect place? It would be imperfect. Right? I figured out finally what the problem is with this earth. It's me. I must be changed into a new likeness. And so God has started this process. He is in the process of resurrecting me from the inside out. In verse 5 we see, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us His Spirit as a guarantee. The inside of me, when I came to believe in Christ at age 18, has been resurrected. Remember what Paul says later in chapter 5, there, excuse me, uh, later in this passage, actually 17 and 18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
The old is gone. The new has come. Even though I'm still me, even though I'm still falling apart on the outside, there's a new Carlos on the inside. And he who began a good work in me will finish it, will bring it to completion. We're doing some renovations on our house right now. We've got a guy, we haven't used our kitchen for five or six days. The restaurant bills are starting to build, as are the dishes. And so he's tiling our kitchen. And in order to tile our kitchen, he had to get off the old tile. And lo and behold, there was a layer of laminate under that old tile. And there was a layer of laminate under that laminate. And then there was the grout, and he's been working and working and working. And when he got down there, he showed me a couple places. The subfloor in particular areas where moisture had gotten through were rotten. He said, if you put tile on this particular place, it doesn't matter, it's going to buckle eventually. Because it cannot support this new tile, this new material, if you will. All analogies are imperfect. It's actually the opposite. It's my outside that needs to be changed. My inside must be changed first. If you're a Christian, if you are a disciple of Christ and follow Him, your inside has been changed. But if you are not yet a Christian, your inside has not been changed. But the outside must be changed. I must become imperishable to inherit the imperishable. So why am I saying all these things? I think first because I want you and me to judge ourselves for who we really are. When you look at the world, when you look in the mirror, who do you see? How do you judge yourself? What's your yardstick, so to speak? There's that temptation that the world presses upon us. I am what I've done. I am what I have. I am what others think of me. I am how I look. But it says in the scriptures that man looks at the outside appearance, but God looks at the heart. We must begin to judge ourselves, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. God has done a work in me. He is doing a work in me. And though I'm flawed and still make mistakes and I'm getting older, God is doing a work. I must judge myself for who I am and I must judge others correctly. I must not see them simply for the political preferences they have. I must not see them simply for what they choose to do with their bodies. I must see through them, to them, and assign them dignity and respect and honor because they are made in the image of God. This is the longing that you experience. This is what this longing is. How do we deal with this longing in this world? It goes on to say in verse 2, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Now that we know what the longing is, we start to be able to put words to our feelings. This word groan is the same word as grief. There's pain and grief. 
Why? I think first because of sin. Wasn't it Paul in Romans 7? He said, I do not understand what I do. For what I don't want to do, I do. And what I do want to do, I don't. Who will rescue me from this body of flesh? We groan because of sin. We groan because we know the truth of what is good and what is holy and what we want. And we have to face the reality that so often we don't live up to it. That's the true groaning in the mirror. We groan not only because of our sin, but we groan because of our weakness. My kids continue to tell me about the white that is coming in in my hair. I tell them, no, this is hydrogen peroxide. It's sun-kissed. It's blonde, you know, because I'm, you know, one of the boys of summer or whatever. They say, no, Dad. I keep looking at my kids and, and uh, every night they go into their room and then they come out and this hulking creature comes out of the room. They're bigger and larger and stronger. And yet when I go to my mirror, I look a little bit more hunched a little bit more wrinkled, a little bit more beat up. I'm dying. We're all terminal, aren't we? We reach the apogee of our physical existence and it is all downhill from there. But we have tasted in our hearts glory and honor. And so the Christian lives in tension between the honor and glory that is inside of us and the weakness and fallenness that's outside of us. Being a Christian is hard. But you see, we can groan differently than the world because we know what is to come. We know it's out there. We can be like the child who's groaning for Christmas yet knowing that Christmas is going to come when we groan for the right things. If indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found naked. Adam and Eve, when they tasted the fruit, they spiritually died. And when they opened their eyes, they saw that they were naked and they were ashamed. God has done a work in us resurrecting our hearts. And yet we long for completion. We long to no longer wear this suit we long to no long, uh, be tied to our fallenness. We long to be clothed with glory. The glory that is in our hearts. The glory that is promised to us. For while we are still in this tent, verse 4, we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. This word burdened, you can translate it as heavy or pressed down. It's like we're walking around with a spiritual gravity on our shoulders. That's why you get tired by the end of the day. Christian, there's a physical tiredness, but there's a spiritual tiredness. We long to be clothed. Not to be unclothed, but be clothed. Paul is living in a time Greek thought that believed that the problem of the world was with the flesh 
And ultimately, true liberation was to escape the flesh and to enter the realm of the spiritual, meaning the ghost spiritual. But Paul is not saying that, is he? Not that we would be unclothed, but that we, we would have a new set of clothes. It might surprise you that there's actually still a, a level of dissatisfaction currently in heaven. He said, how can that be? Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. I refer to Revelation, where the souls of those who have died under the altar say to Christ, how long, O Lord, how long? See, the spirit of those people who have died are in heaven with Christ. But the time of resurrection has not yet come. Their bodies, unresurrected, sleep in the ground until the day when Christ comes and the resurrected body will be joined to the resurrected spirit. Everybody is waiting for that day when mortal will be swallowed up by life. Mortal equals death. But I love the picture, swallowed by life. It's the same word used when the Egyptian army went into the Red Sea pursuing the Israelites. And the Red Sea overwhelmed them and drowned them. As life overwhelms our mortal bodies and we are made immortal. All of this will happen at the end. We don't know when the end will come. It could be 20 years from now. It could be 20 minutes from now. But Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death. I was running in the Shamrock Marathon and I was suffering. It was mile 26, but the marathon is 26.2 miles. And the last section of the Shamrock Marathon is on the boardwalk. I don't know if you've ever been on the boardwalk, but you look down and you say, that's not that far away. And you start walking and somehow magically it starts going further back. And so there am I, empty, out of gas, running to make my time. And yet it seems to be further and further. And yet I know, in the twinkling of an eye, I will have crossed that line and I can rest. I think that's the way that we should regard life. You can have a holy dissatisfaction. So do you. You can also have an unholy dissatisfaction. How do you know the difference between the two? Well, the answer is simple. What do you long for? I long for stuff. I long for all that this earth can offer. For when I receive it, then I'll truly be happy. Or do you long for your heavenly body? Do you long for that far off country to come into view 
right around the bend? Is your hunger to see Christ and for all to be made new? What is it that you mourn for? I mourn for the fact that I don't live in that neighborhood. I mourn for the fact that I don't have that job. I mourn for the fact that I don't look like that person. Or I mourn for my sin. I mourn for how I live in the face of what I know to be true. I mourn for this earth and the broken creation and the things that people do to one another. The beatitude is true. Blessed are those who mourn now. For they will be, I can't remember. It's not a good sign for a pastor. Comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will fi be filled. I don't know what your solution is for the outlook of this world. But if it's about solving its outer problems alone, you're simply straightening the deck chairs on the Titanic. Jesus did not come to make us better men and women. He came to make us different men and women. To change us from the inside out. And you and I hold the very words of life. If you have come to know Christ. By speaking them into a life of a person. By seeking to demonstrate this life that is inside of you. You can change a person's destiny forever. Mourn for the right things. Finally, how do we live now in the face of all of this? Paul says, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live with courage. Why? I think because we know how it's all going to end. And we also know that he's here even though we can't see him. As long as we're at home in this body, we're away from the Lord physically. There's not going to be a heaven on earth until everything is changed. Christ is here, but he is here in spirit, in our hearts. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Oh, it's true. But as we live in this world, we walk by faith, not by sight. God is saying that you must see not with physical eyes, but with spiritual eyes. I still believe it's true that Christianity, if you look at the world, makes the most sense, just on an empirical basis. But I've never seen Jesus. I haven't seen the kingdom of God fulfilled. I've heard him in my head, but I've never heard his audible voice. I have to live, right? I have to walk. I have to follow after something. So I must, I like the way they put it, walk by faith and not by sight. It's a continual process as I walk toward that God who's just over the horizon, who I feel around me yet I cannot see. What must I exercise faith in as I walk? Number one, faith in him. I am resurrected. I am in Christ. I am victorious, not because of what I've done, but because of what he did. 
I never got up on that cross, and even if I had, I would have deserved it. But he did, and he died, and he rose again. I must have faith in him. I must have faith in his plan. He has given us his words. He says, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He has given us his word that we may navigate through this life. Your word, the Bible says, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I must choose to walk by sight, what the world tells me, or by faith, what God's word is telling me. I must choose to walk by faith in his power because the Bible tells me to give my life away. The Bible tells me to abandon myself for others. The Bible tells me to do things that are exact opposite of what the world tells me to do. I must choose. Am I going to trust in his power, the one who was raised from the dead, or in the power of this world, which is no power of all? And I must trust in his coming. I must believe this truth that I'm not getting older. I'm getting closer. So my friends, live like you're already there. Did not Jesus say the kingdom of God is at hand? So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. You know, the great thing about our life and the purpose of our life is it doesn't matter in the end whether I'm, uh, my body is resurrected or not. What matters is the ease in which I'm able to do it. But the goal has always been to please him. Isn't that amazing that we can bring a smile to the face of God by desiring to walk, him, walk after him and to love him? It is the one thing that God does not have by choice. It is why he gave us free will to choose who we want to love, to choose who we want to honor. It won't be a question in heaven. In fact, we will have no other desire. But we can live that way there, here. So what's your aim? At the very end, says verse 10, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, we don't negate the entire Bible by reading that passage. We're not judged simply on how many good things we did as opposed to how many bad things we did. But we are judged because our life will reflect our belief in the end. Did not Jesus say, judge a tree by its fruit? My life must show my faith. Or I don't have any faith. My life will reflect it. Does yours. My hope for you and me is when we put our pillow, our head on our pillow at night, we say this, I must love Jesus. Look how I chose to live today. Albeit imperfectly. But the world knows. Everybody has a God. And every God has a price. Jesus Christ is the only master that you will serve that will set you free. So 
So how do I sum up all of this? Simply this. A holy dissatisfaction is not something to be avoided. Recognize the longing for what it is and embrace it. Lift up your heads for your redemption is near. Long for the right things. And until the kingdom of God comes in its fullness, until I receive myself in fullness, walk by faith, not by sight, with an eye on pleasing the Lord. What were those three things that Jesus promised a disciple? Absurdly happy, something else, and always in trouble. Let's pray. God, thank you that you've shown us the truth. There is another body prepared directly by you, an immortal one fashioned after the likeness of Jesus Christ when we will be all that we long to be. I pray for those who are here that may not know you, that they would surrender their hearts to you as master and that they would experience the elation of being made one with you in their spirit as you come in and clean house and occupy their heart. Lord, help us to live with a holy dissatisfaction, longing for the right things, walking by faith, and may the world stare in wonder. Pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.